Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. I listened to Abbey Road one final time with my husband, wondering if he'd purposefully placed it last in the carousel so I'd hear the Beatles singing about the love you take being equal to the love you make while I kissed him goodbye. This program features the work of 2020 writer Michelle Goodman. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Anastasia Renee, recorded in the Jack Straw Studio. Michelle, what connects you most to your genre of writing? I think... I have always liked to tell stories. I am currently writing creative nonfiction, essay, memoir, slightly fictionalized memoir. (laughs) I tried to write fiction when I was younger. It didn't work. And I became a journalist. And I've always liked telling true life stories. Um, I think it helps us make sense of life and the world and helps other people feel less alone when they read and relate to a story that speaks to them. Would you say the genre picked you or you picked the genre? I think the genre picked me because I really did try hard to be a fiction writer when I was younger and it just, it didn't work. Like it didn't feel like authentic real writing and writing something that was more pulled from, you know, my life or other people's lives, that was something more true versus made up that that just felt like the way I needed to write. I was thinking about that because sometimes writers hide behind fiction. There are, you know, there are true stories hidden beneath and within the confines of fiction and poetry. But for someone who is writing nonfiction openly and publicly, it feels like there's no there's no hiding place. That's true. There is no hiding place. And there's some things that I might have in an early draft, and then I can't, I feel like I can't put it into a final draft because what's more valuable telling the story or maintaining a relationship with somebody that I might hurt by saying something that is just too personal or maybe not charitable, even if you're just saying it factually, maybe it's, you know, airing a secret. And I know there's a lot of people have different takes on this, you know, how much nonfiction is altered. But um, that's sometimes where, you know, I might do a little doctoring of, I don't know, like a circumstance or something someone said or who the person is, or it just might not make it into the draft. It sounds like for you that you have to. Like the push is, is more than a push. It is a, it's a necessity. It is. Um, but it's funny to say that sometimes because, you know, I might not work on my own writing every day. Um, It just depends what's going on in my life. But as long as I'm reasonably close to it every week, that really helps. 
I'm anxious. I want you to talk about your project. What, what, what are you doing? I wish I knew. <laughs> no, I um, I, I started writing about end of life stuff, dying, grief. Um, I'm not sure how I'm containing this, you know, package in a manuscript yet. But I, I mean, there's just lots of bits and pieces I have, lots and lots. But um, and I started doing that. Four years ago, three or four years ago, because the person I was married to began to die at a young age. And, I mean, that goes back to, you know, writing. It helped me make sense of what was happening. It helped me understand, like, it's almost like sometimes things aren't real until you create a story about them. Or in your case, until you decide to tell the truth to the world about it, I yeah. would imagine it becomes a lot more real Yeah. once you put it out there into the world. Yeah, definitely. In your writing, what has been the biggest epiphany you've experienced based on your work? But because your work is, is also nonfiction, I guess I could open that up and just say at all, what has been your, your biggest epiphany the first thought would be oh i'm writing creative nonfiction, and so either i'm writing you know a journalistic take on someone else's story or an event or a trend or something and trying to make it into something slightly literary or essay-ish or i'm writing something from you know true life that i've experienced and that seems so navel-gazing and small but i guess what i realized quickly is it's very relatable to other people. I mean, not everyone, but even if you're telling one person's story or one group's story and it's, you know, it's based truths or mostly truths, it, um, it, it speaks to people. And, you know, even if they haven't experienced that, um, it's just it can still hit people emotionally the same way that something fictionalized can and that was kind of exciting to realize. Though it's uncomfortable <laughs> uh, for most writers to take time out and celebrate their own writing, even when it's heavy, Share with us your favorite aspect about your work. Um, I used to write funny things. <laughs> <laughs> so I enjoy when every so often something funny creeps into something I'm writing about something so awful, which I don't think necessarily happened just now. <laughs> but um, I like that I kind of just am straightforward about certain things and maybe say the like uncomfortable or brash things I'm not supposed to say you know as I was reading that I was like god he would kill me he'd be mortified <laughs> I'm such a jerk for writing this um 
So I guess I like those aspects. Do you think that writers should have a writing practice or writing rituals? Where do you stand on that? I think I'm going to answer this in the most hypocritical way possible. (laughs) I think I know it has helped when I've had it, and I aspire to have like a regular, consistent writing routine, which I don't really have right now. I've always been a person who writes in um, spurts, and partly because I've often worked as a freelancer, so between projects, then I'd make a deadline for myself somehow and work on something I wanted to do. But yeah, right now I'm I'm still doing it in sort of fits and starts, you know, after work hours. But I think it would be definitely easier if there was a little bit of a set schedule. You know, and it doesn't have to be like this big overwhelming thing like I'm going to write 8 hours Sunday, which seems like maybe you might be setting yourself up for failure if that's, you know, if you're just getting back to writing or something. But, you know, just like a few short sessions built into the week, whether it's before or after work or on the weekends. Because it is hard to be away from something you're working on. It's hard to come back to it. You feel so rusty and it's hard to get back to where you were, even if you do apply a bunch of tricks. So I think kind of trying to touch the writing every couple days, I could see how it would be extremely useful. (laughs) What is one thing you'd want to tell your early writing self? Stop wishing for material, because one day you'll get older and you'll have plenty of things to talk about. Um, And do it. I mean, I was such a big whiner (laughs) about not doing my writing as much as I wanted to, but I was doing other things. And so just be okay with it. Like if you're, you know, if this year you're going to choose to not focus on your creative life as much as some other things, just be okay with it. Like it's fine. You'll come back to it when you want to. I stressed a lot about that when I was younger, and it was completely a waste of time. Now we'll hear a selection from Michelle's live reading. I'm going to read an essay in three parts that I started um, in this program as, you know, an exercise we were doing and um, fleshed out for a publishing project of essays and poems about COVID times and proceeds of that are going to independent bookstores. So it's um, another neat thing to be involved with. This is called Touch. Part one, life. My once healthy ox of a husband slumped over in the wheelchair, snoring gently, 
It was 2016. Greg was 47, dying of cancer, and for the past two days, more asleep than awake. I'd put off washing his hair all weekend, the hours crowded with visits from loved ones who'd driven or flown many miles to hold his hand, rub his back, tell him how much he meant to them, helping us pretend we had some semblance of control over the impending tidal wave of death. The morning winter sky filled with Seattle's trademark gray mist. My legs were heavy with exhaustion. The last thing in the world I wanted to do was wash my husband's sweat-drenched head. I'd spent the past hour helping Greg to and from the bathroom, getting his pills and morphine into him, putting a fresh pair of pajamas on him, changing the sheets on his rented hospital bed, doing the laundry. I would have killed for 90 consecutive minutes of sleep. And when was the last time I had eaten or showered or smelled anything other than the sickly sweet scent of decay filling that TV room turned death portal? But the day's parade of visitors was set to start in half an hour, and I was determined to stay on task. I grabbed a magic self-washing shower cap the hospice nurse had brought us the week before and willed myself to make sense of the instructions. Place the cap on the patient's head, massage for two to three minutes, and voila, clean hair, no rinsing or toweling off needed. The baby blue plastic packaging listed only two ingredients, aloe vera and rubbing alcohol. I wondered if self-washing shower caps worked as magically as the packaging claimed. Perhaps the hospice center didn't give a shit if the dying were left with shampoo residue in their hair. They were dying after all. I made sure Greg's wheelchair brakes were locked and then stood behind him. The sound the shower cap wrapper made as I tore it open awakened him. The way our dog would stir from her bed when I opened any food packaging in the kitchen that sounded anything like a dog treat bag. As I fit the shower cap onto Greg's scalp, he lifted his head off his chest, struggling to hold it up. I couldn't keep him alive, but I could try to keep him clean and comfortable. Although I wasn't convinced his hair was cleaner after I removed the cap, it had the illusion of cleanliness, or at least freshness. The somewhat antiseptic scent of the gooey aloe and alcohol combination preferable to the tangy, bitter smell of perspiration. Are you going to cut my hair now? Greg asked, confusing me with the friends scheduled to give him a trim later that week. I bit the inside of my mouth, willed myself not to cry. No, baby, I just washed your hair, I said, tracing one of the damp, overgrown curls creeping down the base of his neck with my index finger. My husband's chin fell onto his chest. He'd already fallen back asleep. Part two, death. The next morning, Greg was gone. No breath, no heartbeat. The pulse oximeter I purchased at the drugstore weeks earlier showing no signs of life. Unsure what to do, I called 911. 
Paramedics and police soon crowded our TV room and confirmed what I didn't want to be true. Someone turned off the humming oxygen concentrator in the hall and removed the nasal cannula from Greg's face. Please don't take him away, I pleaded. The hospice told me I could keep him home for 24 more hours. Please don't take him. No one objected. After the entourage left, I called the hospice. A nurse offered to come help wash Greg's body. Together, we slipped him out of his clammy pajamas and with towels and a plastic basin, gently bathed and dried him. We then maneuvered him into a fresh pair of lounge pants and his favorite football jersey, black and purple nylon emblazoned with his name in white letters on the back. Greg was still warm. His skin was soft and supple. My sister came over mid-morning, just as the nurse was leaving. She made camp upstairs, fielding calls and texts, while I stayed in the TV room with my husband. I grabbed the CD remote and hit play. The carousel was filled with Beatles and Dylan discs Greg had chosen days earlier, his favorites. I curled up alongside him, sobbing, squeezing his arms, petting his hair, kissing his lips, cheeks, eyelids, telling him how sorry I was that he had to go. I took pictures of Greg's serene, handsome face. I listened to songs like Simple Twist of Fate and You're a Big Girl Now, as though hearing them for the first time. This went on well into the afternoon, save for the couple of times my sister came downstairs to bring me food or relay messages from relatives. The back of Greg's neck grew a mottled purple as the blood inside his body began to pool. His skin was cooling, his limbs stiffening. I wondered aloud if I should call the funeral home to come get him. Take your time, my sister said, touching my arm. There's no rush. After the CD, I told her, I'll be ready then. I listened to Abbey Road one final time with my husband, wondering if he'd purposefully placed it last in the carousel so I'd hear the Beatles singing about the love you take being equal to the love you make while I kissed him goodbye. Part three. Afterlife. I periodically visit the cemetery where Greg is buried. My rituals, a lot like those from our last day together. I talk to him and cry. I play wistful songs on my phone. I bring him shells and rocks from the beach. I lay in the soft grass with my cheek pressed against his cool headstone. Only now I do all this wearing a mask over my mouth and nose. Sometimes I look across the cemetery grounds to the chapel, the site of Greg's memorial more than three years ago. A hundred people stuffed into that overheated sanctuary to share juicy bear hugs, little known stories about Greg, and deep belly laughs. We sat shoulder to shoulder in the pews, passing programs and tissues and cups of water. My brother-in-law, who officiated, clasped his hands around those of each person who stepped to the podium to speak. 
When the slideshow of photos grew too much for me to bear, my mother locked elbows with me, and my sister interlaced her fingers with mine, anchoring my body to the pew. After the service, the crowd spilled into the reception area. The sea of neighbors, friends, family, and colleagues from various eras of my life with Greg was dizzying. We squeezed hands and passed around old photo albums and ate from communal platters of finger food. I wasn't sure when, if ever, I'd see them all in one setting again. So I pressed my cheeks to as many of them as I could, savoring each embrace, our tears and breath, and words of comfort commingling like morning mist and fog before evaporating in the sunlight. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production, produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Steve DeTori, Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Sassy Black, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2020 curator of this program is Anastasia Renee, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keene. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Larry Lawrence for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>